Hey family, we are here again, um, worshiping together um, after seeing the viral murder of another black person at the hands of those who are called to serve and protect. And like you, I have been going through the range of emotions, grief, shock, anger, frustration, hopelessness, and exhaustion. And also like many of you, I have wondered what can I do? What can I do? And the answer to that question is complex because what can I do and what can you do all depends on our resources, our platform, our influence, and our power. What a college or university president can do is much different than what a student at that same university can do. What the CEO of a company can do is much different than what an employee at that same company can do. So what can you do is determined by your capacity and your ability to do. But before we begin to assess the answer to what can we do, we must first begin with the fundamental question of what must we do. You see, the Bible does not leave our response to injustice up for debate. It doesn't leave it up to chance or our preferences. The Bible gives us clear commands about our response to injustice, about our response to the evils of racial discrimination, police brutality, and all the other forms of injustice we see in our world. We do not have to guess. We do not have to guess what must we do. You see, our response to injustice should be motivated by love for brothers, but not love for brothers and sisters alone. Some of you are familiar with John 13, 35. That makes clear that the mark of a true disciple of Jesus Christ, those who are blood-bought, filled with the Spirit, the true mark of a disciple is love for brother and sister. That is the non-negotiable trait that all believers should have. And so that should be enough to motivate us and to catapult us into action whenever we see our brothers and our sisters suffering. But that's not the only command we have in the Bible that should prompt us into action. You see, it's not just love for brother, but fear of the Lord that should motivate us to respond to injustice. You see, if we sit on the sidelines as our brothers and sisters suffer under the cruel oppression of injustice, it is not just you and I that have a problem. It is you and I and God who have a problem. And that is what the book of Isaiah begins with. You see, in chapter one of the book of Isaiah, the prophet begins with a condemnation and a call to repentance, not for those outside of the church, but for God's people first. And this will be an instructive time for us to see what does God have to say about the charge and the call and the consequences of disobedience to respond to injustice. Look with me in Isaiah chapter one, verses two and four at the beginning. It says, listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master feeding straw, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O oh, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. What is this strong language that the prophet Isaiah is beginning with? This is a strong indictment of the people of Israel because they have not fulfilled the commands of God. They have been disobedient to what God has clearly demanded. 
And this text is going to be instructive to us because many of us are asking the same question about what does God require of us? What must we do so that we not just maintain our relationships with our brothers and sisters, but so that we can live in fear of the Lord? And here we have a warning that there are some in our history, God's people, who have forgotten who their God is. They have forgotten his commands. And Isaiah 1 reminds us of the consequences. The next 10 verses are a stark reminder of what happens when we disregard God's commands. That the cities are burning, that armies are plundering their lands, and the people are suffering. But as bad as that is, the consequences of our disobedience in this area of injustice isn't just limited to external consequences. Verses 11 through 15 points to how our disobedience in this area leads to God's wrath, judgment, and ultimately the rejection of our worship. Read with me in verse 11 through 15. What are all your sacrifices to me? Asked the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies, I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Again, God is not talking about a judgment on those outside of the church. He's talking about the rejection of the worship of his people. Those who are in the church, God does not want our sacrifices. He does not want our offerings. He detests our worship. He will not listen to our prayers. Why? Because our hands are covered in blood. Our hands are stained with blood. Now, this is where the word of God begins to unpack exactly how we have been disobedient, how the people of God have been disobedient up to this point. All we've seen is the terrible consequences of that disobedience. But what command are we missing? What command are we not yet following, which causes God to reject our worship and our prayers? Verses 16 and 17 makes it plain. He says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves. Remove the evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. You see, the indictment upon the nation of Israel, the indictment upon God's church wasn't that they weren't praying enough, wasn't that they weren't worshiping enough, wasn't that they weren't giving enough. No, what they were doing was they were doing evil. They weren't pursuing justice. They weren't correcting the oppressor. They weren't defending the rights of the fatherless. They were not pleading the cause of the widow. They were not doing God's justice on this earth. And so God rejected their worship. And so, church, when we begin to ask the question, what must we do? It must start with us. Humble submission to God's word in this area. That God has made plain for us what must we do, and it begins right here. Let's walk through what God is calling us to do, and then I want to end with some very, very practical applications to this truth. The first thing God calls us to do is to wash ourselves, to cleanse ourselves. 
Now, those of you who've been going to church for a little bit of time, that language may sound familiar. This idea of washing yourselves in Revelation 7:14, it says, sir, you know, he told me these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation and they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. You see, time and time again, the word of God reminds us that the only way that we can be made clean is not by moral perfection, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so the first and foremost step to being on the path of justice is having a relationship with him who is and conquered all evil and injustice in the world. And so we must begin with recognizing that we must have a first, a right relationship with God. But that's not all. We are called to stop doing evil ourselves. We are to not participate in the acts of evil that's done in this world. And I know what many of you are saying is, I'm not that fill in the blank. I'm not racist. I'm not a bad cop. I'm not part of the oppressors. But the Lord is calling us to pause and really ask, is there evil that we are participating in that we must repent of? And then the word of God says to learn what is good to learn what is good, to immerse ourselves in the counsel of God's holy and perfect scripture so that our understanding of right and wrong, our understanding of just and unjust would be conformed to what God says it is, not what our culture allows. We must learn what is good. Then we must pursue justice by correcting the oppressor. It calls for us to speak out and stand up against those who are doing the wrong thing and the systems that are perpetuating inequity and injustice. And then we must defend the rights of the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Some translations say that we must take up the widow's cause. And I love that imagery because it's, it's like running a race. And if you ever ran track, there's a part of a race where there's a baton that is passed and a four by four, four by one relay. And the runner is running full speed and he's getting to where he's passing the baton. He's giving his last bit of strength, hoping that the baton will be taken by someone who has fresh legs and fresh wind. And that's where we are now. There has been some who have been running the race of justice for far too long, yet there has been no one to pass the baton to. And their legs have grown weary. Their hearts have grown weary. And this is a reminder that we must take up the cause of others. We must be men and women, brothers and sisters who can be passers of the baton and receive the baton from others and say, this isn't my issue. This isn't my problem because you are my brother. You are my sister. I make it my issue. I make it my problem. I make your cause my cause. And that's what the Lord says, that we must be people who do justice. And I love John Perkins gives us a definition of biblical justice. And it simply says this, that justice is an act of reconciliation that restores any part of God's creation to its original intent, purpose or image, making right any of the things that have gone wrong in this very good world that God made and among the very good humans beings that he created to inhabit. You see, we are acting in a reconciling way. We are actors in this reconciliation redemption story when we seek to make right anything that is wrong in this world. And so the word of God is very clear that God will reject our worship, our prayers, our solemn assemblies, our feasts, our fasting, if we ignore his clear commands of how we are to respond to injustice. So you may be sitting there and wondering, okay, I, I get that. What does that mean? 
How can I learn to do what is good? How can I correct the oppressor? How can I take up the cause of those who are being oppressed? I want to give you four very practical steps that you can start your journey right now on walking in obedience to God's command. The first thing that we must do is catch up. The first thing we must do is catch up. We must realize that this conversation about injustice, this conversation about racial discrimination, about racism, this conversation might be new to us, but it is not new. This is a conversation that has spanned thousands of years globally and hundreds of years right here in America. And so the first step that we must take is to catch up on the conversation. Now, by catching up, what do I mean? I mean, instead of asking your brothers and sisters who are affected by injustice a question, simply do a Google search, hop on YouTube, read a book, listen to a podcast, do some learning on your own so that you can be a participant in this conversation. But also catching up doesn't just mean learning. It also means learning from the history of the past. You see, many of us who've wrestled with these areas of injustice for far too long, we start to waver on whether we can maintain a sense of hope in these moments. We start to feel that hopelessness creeping in, start to wonder if anything will ever change. And so part of catching up is remembering that people have felt like this before and yet change has been accomplished. We have brothers and sisters in the faith who have gone before us, who have been facing impossible odds that we can learn from their stories and draw encouragement from their stories. So catching up is not just learning more information. It's been reminded of the hope that we have. We must first catch up. Secondly, that we must do is we must keep up. We must keep up. This next step of catching up is about keeping up. We must keep up our relationship with those who experience life differently than us, who look different than us. We must be proactive in maintaining the relationships with those who are not like us that can inform our experience with their experiences. We must keep up with looking at those we learn from. What sources are we feeding our minds and our souls that challenge our worldview? When has the word of God ever changed our mind on the issue of race and justice? You see, keeping up is about continuing to learn, continuing to build relationships so that we don't slip back into a biased and narrow worldview so that we can maintain integrity in the word of God, maintain a broad view of this world as we have relationships with those who have experienced this world differently than us. And nextly, we must look up. We must catch up. We must keep up. And then we must look up. We must allow the word of God and the spirit of God to confront us. We must look to the hills from where our help comes from and say, God, I don't know where you stand on this issue as I ought to. Help me inform my predispositions, inform how I vote, inform how I engage, inform before I post on social media. Let me align my values to your values. And so we must look to God as the final source of what shapes our worldview. And church, that's hard to do because all theology is contextual theology. There is always a blindness that we bring to the scriptures. We see that in our historical forefathers, don't we? They wrote great tombs and tomes of, of theological truths, and yet they were blind in critical areas. And so that should humble us to say, where have we been blind? Where are we not reading scripture rightly? And so looking up isn't looking to God to affirm your sensibilities. It's looking to the word of God to challenge your sensibilities, knowing that you are not God 
And the way that you feel about issues of race and injustice are probably not 100% the way God would have you feel. And so looking up is a reminder that we need God to inform us every step of the way. And the last step, after we keep up, after we catch up, after we look up, the last step is to stand up. You see, we don't have to go out of our way to find racial injustice. We don't have to go out of our way to find racism. We don't have to go out of our way to be confronted with the harsh realities of the world that we live in. But when it comes to you, what will you do? When you're sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table and grandma, grandpa says something that you know counters the very image of God of your brothers and sisters, what will you say when no one is around? When your school teaches a curriculum of a narrative that's just not true historically, what will you do in that moment? And so after we have informed ourselves, after we have built relationships, after we have submitted our ideas about these issues to God's word, then we must stand up to it when it comes our way. And so if that means you have to get up from a Thanksgiving meal, if that means you have to confront a curriculum or a teacher, if that means that you have to speak out in a way that demonstrates that those who are made in the image of God will be treated as such on your watch. Whatever you have to do, you are standing up, not just out of love for brother and sister, but out of fear of God himself, because he commands us to do these things. And so, family, we've got to catch up. We've got to keep up. We've got to look up and we've got to stand up. That's how we live out Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. That's how we purify ourselves. That's how we take up the cause of others. That's how we remove the evil deeds from our sight is by taking practical steps to learn, to connect, to grow and to take a stand. And let me say one more thing. In the age of social media, we have been told the half truth that social media activism is activism. And I appreciate all the comments and the threads and the, and the blogs that have been written, all the statements of affirmation and support that have been submitted, but words are just words. If words are not a accountability statement for action, it, those words will ultimately condemn us. And so standing up is more than speaking up. It's not less than speaking up, but it is more than speaking up. You must do something with your faith. There's been phenomenal stories, even in this church, of people who have moved to different neighborhoods, who have attended different schools, who have confronted various family members. And that is a beautiful display that we fear God more than we fear man. But that must continue. It must be more than words. We can't just speak up. We've got to stand up. And what does God's word say is a result? If not doing these things causes the wrath of God, if not doing these things causes the judgment of God, if not taking up the cause of the oppressed causes God to disregard our worship, to not hear our prayers, to be detested by our feasts and our fasts and our solemn assemblies, what is the result of obedience to God's command around injustice? We find that in verses 18 through 20 of Isaiah 1. And it simply says this, Come, let us settle this, says the Lord, Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. They, they, though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. So we have a clear promise that though we have been washed by the blood of Christ, our obedience gives us a blessing of promise. 
that there is a promise on the other side of our obedience, that there is good not just for ourselves, but for the land itself, for this city, for this nation. If the church would be the church, it would bless the land around us. But verse 20 gives us a reminder that if we continue in our disobedience, it says, but if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's a clear reminder, church, that if we refuse and if we continue in our rebellion, our worship will be rejected. Our prayers will be despised and we will be devoured by the very violence that we refuse to stand against. The scriptures cannot make this any more plain, church, that we must do something. What can you do? I don't know. Look around you. What power do you have? What influence do you have? What resources do you have? That can inform what can you do, but you must do something because that is not optional. God has laid out a clear prescription for our response to injustice, and that should drive the thought process to thinking, God, what can I do knowing that I must do something? Let me say clearly a word of hope before we end our time here together. As a church, not just Radiant Church, but as part of the Big C Church, we have done an adequate job, not as great as it could have been, but we have done an adequate job of telling of a eternal hope that one day when we die, we will see God and he will come back and then everything will be okay. And that is a great and glorious truth that will anchor my soul in the darkest valleys of the night. At, the, at my lowest points of life, I find that truth to be an anchor. I find that truth to breathe life into my soul again. But that is not the only hope we have, church, is that one day, one day God will come back and make right every wrong. That is our most foundational hope, but yet there is another hope. That is the hope of the church. The hope of the church says that God's people gathered under the authority of God's word, empowered by God's spirit, if we would be obedient, would join him on God's mission. And that mission would give hope to people today would give life to people today, which would point to an eternal life that we only find in Jesus. Would we be people that not just preach of a future hope, but also a present treasure in Christ? Would we be people who join God on his mission today, his mission of justice, his mission of correcting the oppressor and taking up the cause of the defenseless, the fatherless and the widow? Would we be people who live out the mission of God today to give hope to a world who needs it? There is no hope in secular psychology. There is no hope in criminal justice reform alone. There is no hope and the activity of those who do not have the spirit of God living within them, trying to achieve something that's impossible for them. But church, we have eternal hope. We have power from God himself, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We have the truth with his Jesus and which from which all other truths flow. We have all of this not to keep it to ourselves and not just to, to protect until the one day in glory, but to release it and to mobilize it in this world today. So that criminal justice reform would point to something greater than itself. That police brutality's consequences would point to something greater than itself. 
that social action would point to something greater than itself. So as we present hope today, we point to a hope tomorrow, which is only found in Jesus. It is not either or, it must be both and. And the only people who can do that are God's people, are you and me. So what is God saying to us today, church? It's simply this. Our prayers, our fasting, our worship, all means nothing. All means nothing. Our hands will still be stained with blood unless we take seriously what we must do. And what we must do is be on the cause of justice, be on the cause of the oppressed. And that is non-negotiable. And that is what we must do together.